You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part 12 of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We'll end our reading there at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you've been following this series or if you've read through this section of Matthew, you'll know that we're breaking in in verse 4, verse 5 rather, um, in a, a sequence of teaching from Jesus about acts of righteousness. From chapter 6, verse 1 starts, beware your practice of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That uh, verse is the heading over this whole section down to verse 18. And Jesus illustrates it with three examples. First of all, giving, which we looked at at the end of the last episode, uh, verses two to three, or two, two to four rather. Then prayer, verses five to 15. And then fasting in verses 16 to 18. And of course, this is part of a longer section of Jesus' teaching, the longest portion of unbroken record of Jesus' teaching that we have in any of the Gospels, from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It began with the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, telling us the nature of God's kingdom and of the people who are part of God's kingdom. And then in uh, the rest of chapter 5, Jesus looked at the, the Old Testament law and showed how his kingdom, his rule, would not lead to a diminishing of the standard of the moral law, if I can call it that, but actually a re-intensification of it. Uh, he shows the full extent of that law in terms of uh, the attitudes of our hearts as well as our behaviour. And he ends in chapter 5 with this uh, profound challenge to love our enemies. Well, into chapter 6, the question then is, if this is the nature of morality or of God's expectation of our behaviour in his kingdom with Jesus grounded on, on the person of Jesus, 
well, what is how do we express our faith? How do we live out our faith? What is what is it that Christians should be doing? And there, just as in the standard of morality, there is a great deal of continuity with the Old Testament. Jewish people prayed, they fasted, and they gave. Those were all things that were expected. In fact, their core expectations in, in I think, every major religion, certainly they are um, uh, three of the uh, requirements, the pillars of Islam, if you're familiar with uh, Muslim teaching then fasting for the month of Ramadan and giving uh, alms to those in need and praying uh, five times daily. So these are our, our standard expectations amongst uh, people of religious faith. But what is distinctive about the way Jesus teaches us about these things? Well, uh, the, the key distinction is that he talks about them as responses to and, and aspects of relationship with our Father in heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, talks about a reward from our Father who is in heaven. In the next episode, we'll move on into Matthew 6 verse 19. And Jesus says, don't lay up treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. So there is a, a different orientation. Jesus wants us to think of these in terms of God's kingdom, God's rule and our relationship with him. Now, of course, these are things that other people see and hear as well. But he's warning us against having primarily a vertical, a horizontal rather perspective on these things rather than a vertical one. It's not primarily about what other people see, hear or receive in terms of giving. It is about our relationship with our Father. And therefore, these acts of righteousness are not things that we do in order to impress our Heavenly Father or to escape from his judgment. I think that is some of the wrong thinking in religions of the world, that these are duties that must be done in order to impress God or to keep on the right side of God or to avoid God's disapproval or judgment. That certainly developed amongst some Jewish people. I think it's there in Islamic thinking. And sadly, it's there amongst some Christians. But it's not how Jesus calls us to think about God. You know, the God that Jesus presents us to is one who sees what we do in secret. We don't have to do these things visibly with fanfare. He sees these things. A father who knows us. So your father, verse 6, sees in secret, verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then uh, in verse um, 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you again. So this is about a relationship with God as father and the acts of righteousness flow out from that. Of course, the other big dynamic here is about, about hypocrisy. Don't do these things the way the religious hypocrites do it. They love to be seen by other people. They blow a trumpet before they give money, verse 2 says, uh, whether they literally did that or it's sort of hyperbole. But they wanted people to see how much they were giving and to be impressed by that. Fasting, they disfigure their faces. They make sure that people know that they're fasting so that they, other people are impressed with them. And prayer, they always want to do it in public, in the synagogue, out loud, and in the street corners. 
Now, of course, Jesus is utterly against religious hypocrisy. It's one of the most destructive things. It's the one thing that makes Jesus angry, that we see him being angered with. It's the one time when he is not gentle with people, when he is confronting leaders who are misleading people, false leaders of God's people. And in this case, they, they are hypocrites. They present this view of being pious and holy, uh, and yet actually they have no concern for the needs of people. They're not interested in seeing other people saved. They're just interested in passing judgment on those people. Their lives have become taken over not by a relationship with God, but by their reputation in this world. Uh, and, and that's all that they will get, Jesus says. They've got their reward. The only reward they will get is the reward of other people seeing and perhaps being impressed, but let's face it, sometimes despising them or, or, or thinking they're a bit of a joke. It's not really very impressive when people like to show off, is it? Jesus says, when you do these things, you don't do it that way. Give privately. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Pray privately. Shut your door. Go into your room, shut your door, uh, fast privately, anoint your head and wash your face so that people won't necessarily know you're fasting. Now, again, none of that is to say that it's wrong to lead other people in prayer or it's wrong to be transparent about your giving, which sometimes is necessary. If you're going to claim gift aid, for example, someone needs to know how much you gave and that's wise and good. Uh, or to lead people in prayer. Actually, in the book of Acts, for example, people prayed together and it seems that people led each other in prayer in the church gathering. So Jesus isn't saying those things are utterly wrong, but he's saying they are dangerous and that we must do whatever we can to make sure that our heart is right, to make sure that our motive is right, to make sure that our focus is on God and not on the uh, on how we impress other people. Not the fear of people, not the desire to, to have praise from people, not even the desire perhaps to shame other people into doing uh, as good a job as we do. And Jesus is very real about the human heart, just as he was in chapter 5 when he's dealing with the law and he exposes how our hearts tend to justify the hidden sins. Here, of course, the deepest sin that Jesus confronts is our hypocrisy and our pride. Well, that's so much for the religious hypocrites. Of course, Jesus, when he teaches about prayer, which is the bulk of this section, which we're going to look at, look at in more detail, and specifically the words of the prayer that he teaches to his disciples, he doesn't just talk about the religious hypocrites, he also talks about the Gentiles, verse 7. They heap up empty phrases because they think they'll be heard for their many words. What is it about the Gentile praying? If, if, if one wrong way to pray is to pray to impress people rather than to relate to God, another wrong way is in our thinking about God. We shouldn't think that we need to pray long prayers or wordy prayers or impressive prayers to, to impress God any more than our prayers might impress other people. The Gentiles 
fear the gods. They don't know them well. They're trying to find a formula of words that will impress the gods or unlock their favour. They're trying to show their piety through lengthy prayers and repetitive prayers. Perhaps even the ritualised prayers of, of Islam or of Judaism, praying three times a day for, for Orthodox Jews or five times a day in Islam. Now, again, I'm not saying that it would be wrong for a Christian to have regular prayers, even to set a certain time for those. That, of course, was part of the, or still is part of monastic traditions, having set prayer times throughout the day. That's not necessarily wrong. It's not wrong that we uh, take significant time out in prayer, but we don't do that in order to impress God. We don't do that because we think God is more likely to listen. We don't do it because we think God has gone to sleep and needs us to waken him up. Or God might forget about us, so we need to remind him. Or God might be, you know, um, sort of unwilling to give us something, but if we pester him enough, he will do it. Quite the opposite. Jesus says your father knows what you need before you ask him. He'll go on in chapter 7 to talk about this principle. Ask and it will be given to you, chapter 7, verse 7. And to say that your heavenly father knows what you need and he gives good gifts to his children. So ask him. We have a, a loving father who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows what is good for us better than we will ever know. So when we bring our prayers to him, we are seeking him. We want to listen to him. We want to receive from him, not necessarily what we think we need, but what he knows we need. Prayer is not a, a way of, it's not a, a slot machine where you pop in the prayer and out comes the reward. And it's not uh, a wrestling match trying to convince God to listen to us. If there is wrestling, the wrestling is within our own hearts with submitting to God and to his will. So it's not wrong that we bring to God requests that we are uncertain of and say, Lord, I, I, I think I need this, but you know better. It's not wrong that we bring lament to God either, as the Psalms teach us, but we should expect that when we do that, God will do something in our hearts, will change our attitude, will open up our perspective, will give us a fresh vision of him and of his glory and of his goodness and of his will. When we pray, we are caught up with God in what God is doing. We don't pray because if we didn't pray, God would not work. But we understand from Scripture that God works through our prayers. There's a bit of a conundrum in that, isn't there? Does prayer change things? Well, in one sense it doesn't because God is sovereign and God will do what is good whether we pray or not. But in another sense, yes, it does because when God moves us to pray and when we respond and cooperate with his spirit who leads us in prayer to pray for the things that God wills, then God works through our prayers to achieve those things. Prayer changes us, that is certainly true, but prayer also has an impact on the spiritual realm. It has an impact in a way that I don't fully understand. And some people say, well, hang on a second, how can you believe that prayer achieves things? C.S. Lewis, who wrote many wise and helpful things, commented on this and said, really, when we think about it, it's no more strange, I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing, but it's no more strange 
to think that prayer can change things than it is to think that things that we do in this physical world can change things. Do I believe that when I give somebody uh, uh, food or a cup of water in the name of Jesus, that that blesses them, that they are fed by it? Yes, I do. But I don't take credit for that as the creator of water or of the, uh, the digestive system that allows that person's body to access it. I receive these things as a gift from God and I pass them on. Well, if I can do things in the physical world, then why can I not do things in the spiritual world? When I doubt it, I'm really just reflecting my modernistic Western bias in favour of what can be seen and touched and against what cannot be seen and touched. So we should pray because when we pray, we come to know the heart of our Father and our Father involves us in what he is doing in working out his eternal purpose. What a wonderful thing. And that's why if you find yourself in a position in life where for whatever reason, because of ill health or disability or anxieties, you're unable to go out and physically do things, don't ever underestimate the significance of prayer. It's not a secondary thing to be active in praying for other people or for the work of the church or for evangelism. It is primary. It is the foundational thing. Of course, as we pray, we learn the priorities of God and the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples teaches us those things. You might have noticed when I read it, I accidentally said thy name in the first sentence. I couldn't help it because the version that I have memorised from childhood is the version from the King James uh, with those these and those. But uh, I, this is one of the most familiar portions of scripture. It's still used in contexts where people uh, aren't necessarily in a relationship with God as father. Again, this is the prayer of the child. We call it the Lord's Prayer traditionally. Some people have said it's the disciple's prayer. I might say it's the, the child's prayer. It's because it's the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. It's not a prayer that he needed to pray, at least not in its fullness. He didn't need to pray, forgive us. Uh, Jesus was not a sinner. He didn't need forgiveness. But he's teaching his disciples how to pray. He's teaching us to come to God as Father. And so the first thing we might say about how we pray is to, to, to know that we are coming before a heavenly Father who knows and loves us, who is our Father. There is a closeness and an intimacy, but our Father in heaven, there is also a, a majesty and a transcendence. He is both, and this is what makes, of course, prayer so wonderful, that we come before the throne of heaven and discover that it is a throne of grace towards us. As the writer to Hebrews says, come, so we boldly come before the throne of grace to receive mercy to help us in our time of need. I, I do think there is a Christian pattern of praying to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And Jesus teaches us to pray to Father. It is a wonderful thing. It makes me sad sometimes that I hear Christians who pray to God and never call him Father. In fact, calling him just God, at least if you're going to do that, say Almighty God or, or uh, something like that. But actually, why not pray to him as Father? That's how he 
asks us to pray. It's how the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray. And it is the right relationship to have that the Spirit leads us in. Now, again, I've said we pray to the Father. I'm not saying it is necessarily always wrong to pray to the Son. Some people would say, well, when people, when Jesus was on earth and people cried out to him, that was prayer to the Son. Uh, but I don't see that modelled in the epistles or in the book of Acts. And I certainly don't see prayer to the Holy Spirit. So again, I wouldn't jump on somebody if they pray to the Father, to the Son and to the Spirit. Sometimes I appreciate it's nice to remember the triune God. But the typical normal pattern is to pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit, as the Spirit enables, leads and empowers us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing that Jesus wants us to prioritise in prayer is adoration of our Father. It is to acknowledge who he is, to set his name apart as holy. As, of course, the third commandment says that you should honour the name of God and keep it holy. Don't misuse God's name. Don't take his name in vain. The name of God speaks for the person of God. And it's not that in prayer we make God holy, but as the footnote puts it, we keep God's name as holy. We ask that his name would be treated with reverence. We're asking that every thought of our minds, every priority of our lives, every emotion of our hearts would be aligned with the holiness of God's name, would be guided by reverence for him. In other words, as we pray, one of the things that it does is to reshape us, to, to put God where God belongs, or rather to acknowledge God as being where he is. Our Heavenly Father, the Holy One, the Sovereign One, the One who is in control. We come in our minds, of course, from a place, a world that seems to be out of control and broken, to acknowledge that the world is not out of control because God is in control, that it is not broken, but it is working according to God's good purpose, that even the effects of sin in the world are not out of his control. And in fact, the suffering that we experience is because God has given us over to the consequences of sin, but that God is our saviour and our redeemer and our loving father. So prayer reframes our understanding of everything and the holiness of God is the foundation. We adore him, we acknowledge who he is, we reflect on who he is and his relationship with us. And then we pray, verse 10, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom coming is equated with his will being done. When God is ruling, when we acknowledge the rule of God in our lives, we will do the will of God. And so this is both a prayer for ourselves to say, I want to do the will of God uh, and, and I, I want to live under his kingdom. And to say, I want to see his kingdom coming on earth as other people come to believe in him. I want to see those values influencing society. I want to live in every part of my life as a citizen of God's kingdom. And I want to see others coming into the joy of that. And of course, a longing for the future day, whenever his kingdom will come in fullness. All of that is bound up in this phrase. Again, it's reframing the order of our lives, the goal, the purpose. Stepping from a world that thinks uh, there is no purpose to, 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 to acknowledge that there is a purpose and that purpose is God's kingdom come in my life, coming in the lives of others, coming one day in fullness when Christ returns. 
Then in verse 11, we move from that to pray to give us our daily bread, to provide for us day by day. There is both a a gratitude there, a thankfulness for everything that we have received. Bread, of course, being the substance of of, or the the, the, uh, staple diet that sustains life. For us, how embarrassing it is when we read that with all of the plenty that we have, the diversity of food, the abundance beyond, much beyond what we would ever need. I speak for myself, of course, living in a in a in a Western context. It's not true for everyone in the world all of the time, but it's true for many of us. And if you have the technology to listen to this, it's probably true for you. So this this clause makes us give thanks to God for what we have, but it also expresses our dependence on God to keep on providing for us. And an attitude of daily dependence, which Jesus will come back to later in Matthew 6. Don't worry about tomorrow, but trust in your father and seek his kingdom and righteousness and God will provide for you. Well, here is the prayer of confidence in God's provision, of trust, of asking him, stepping from a world where it feels like we have to work hard to just survive or to gain the stuff that we want, into acknowledging that God provides for us and will provide, and everything we have is a gift from him. And then verse 12, the prayer for forgiveness, forgive our debts or our trespasses. Of course, This is talking about now our relationships with others. We've thought of our relationship with God. How should our relationships with others be directed? Through forgiveness and grace, mercy, patience, all of the qualities that come from the kingdom of God. And Jesus emphasizes this again in verse 14. If we forgive others their trespasses, our heavenly father will forgive us. If we don't forgive them, he won't forgive us. The relationship between loving God and loving others cannot be separated. This is where the religious hypocrites, of course, went wrong. They were trying to impress God and impress others, trying to convince God and to judge others. What God says is, forgive others and I will forgive you. Come and know my grace and then go and show grace to others. Come and discover your need of my mercy, your sinfulness. Acknowledge it. Verse 12 says, uh, forgive our debts. There is no one who, who doesn't have to pray that. No one who does, apart from Jesus himself, no one who hasn't sinned, no one who hasn't fallen short, no one who doesn't have a debt outstanding to others, who has perfectly treated others the way that he or she should Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. There are none of us who don't need to forgive others as well. To release them from the desire for vengeance, to seek to bless them, to love our enemies, as Jesus has said in chapter 5. And then verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The prayer for guidance. Where will my next step be? Lord, don't lead me into temptation, into testing. I don't want to face the temptation of the evil one. I don't want to face testing times. Lord, lead me. Of course, the Lord may lead us into tests. He may allow us to be tempted, but we're praying to him for deliverance. And as the Apostle Paul says, that God will give grace to stand up under our testing, under our temptation, or he will show a way out to us. He will find a way through it for us. 
And this prayer expresses that confidence that God will not lead us into a temptation that we cannot bear, but we pray that he will deliver us from evil, or as the footnote puts it, the evil one. And the idea here is is of, of guidance. Help me to make the right steps. Show me the way ahead. Give me a life of obedience to you. Give me freedom to live for you and for your kingdom. And of course, the traditional, well, some manuscripts have it, but the traditional uh, saying is to end the prayer with, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful prayer. Why does Jesus teach it to us? Well, I, I don't think he's saying, at least I, I think Christians would accept pretty much universally that he's not saying this is the only way that we can pray, the only words we should use. Clearly, this is a model prayer, an example prayer, although it is wonderful to have a set of words that pretty much all Christians know. And I have to say, I love it when I'm together with Christians, particularly if they come from different backgrounds, to say, let's pray this prayer together. Because there's something beautiful about joining our voices together in prayer to our Father. But what Jesus is showing us here is the kind of language we should use in prayer. That we pray to God as Father. That prayer flows from an appreciation of who he is, first of all. That we, we have the same priorities as God has to do the will of God, to see his kingdom growing. That we have dependence on God, that we are seeking to forgive others, that we are asking him to lead us. These are always parts of our prayer, aren't they? In many ways, these are the priorities in every prayer as we respond to a specific need or a specific situation or set of needs or, or, or circumstances or emotions. These priorities can shape every prayer. They're good to remember. They're telling us these are the things God cares about. These are the things God wants to do in your life and through your life. We pray to our Father. We don't need to pray often, as in, uh, or long prayers. It's not that we have to do that to remind God or to impress him. But as we grow in our experience of God as Father, I think we will instinctively pray more and more and longer. And we'll learn to pray these priorities in every aspect of life, frequently, regularly, pausing to pray, taking time out, praying with other Christians, learning from them, letting them lead us and us leading them. But actually, instinctively, every situation when we have a, a troubled emotion, a confusing question in mind, a difficult decision to make, uh, a conflict situation, uh, a pressure point that we're stopping and saying, Lord, help me to pray. And we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.